Hi there. Welcome to Cafe with Strangers. I am your host, Moni, um, and today I have a really awesome guest, um, and I will go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Um, hi, uh, my name is Ura Joan. Um, I go by Ura as well. And I am Puerto Rican. I am from the beautiful island of Borinquen. What else? I'm 37. I live in the state of Washington by the coast uh, with my husband and my two dogs and my cat. <laughs> and I'm also, during my, I have a regular full-time job and then on my free time um, I'm, also, I'm also a visual artist and, and so I mainly draw and paint um, some digital sketches too and uh, I like to draw about uh, my home my little houses back home uh, I like to make uh, science fiction surrealism uh, pop culture <laughs> a little bit of everything I want to mention how I came across what are you on um, yeah. I went so about last month in September was it September yes um, mm -hmm. there was so Seattle was hosting um, a whole bunch of like events of for you know Latinx um, Heritage Month and it was down by the Seattle Center in the arm armory mm -hmm. building. Um, yeah. I went in there. I didn't know what was going on there. I just knew there was an event, so I was like, I want to go. So I'm in there and I see that there's a bit of an art show there, and I was like, this is really cool. So I go up there and I'm seeing all this art and I'm seeing all these people's art and I can draw a stick figure. And that's about it. So I very, I like to admire art in all sorts of different ways. Um, and I was just spending a lot of time up there looking through, through everything. And I came across a whole bunch of um, Latinas there. And I saw your artwork there. And I was like, holy crap, this is really interesting. I want to talk to this person. And so it seemed I, <laughs> I can... It seemed a little random, but when you know the story behind it, it's not that random as to how I came like across your art and um, ended up contacting you. Um, but yeah, that was one of the things that I also did when I talk is about your art. And so we'll probably get a little bit more into that later on. Mm -hmm. um, so with the podcast, it is called Cafe with Strangers. And so I, I used to always forget to mention it, but... I do want to talk a little bit about what you're drinking, what your coffee is today. Okay, so in this huge red cup mug, um, there is just some black coffee with sugar. Uh, Café Bustelo to be specific. Okay. The coffee of the diaspora. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just black coffee with a little bit of sugar. Yeah, well, a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um yeah usually with some oat milk but i ran out so today we're having hot coffee um i love coffee and i love tea as well i can't drink coffee or at least caffeinated coffee when i take my adhd medication because then i get too jittery oh same absolutely yeah. <laughs> so i have 
<laughs> so I try to stick with either decaf coffee if I am on my medication or I stick with teas. That way it's a lot more tolerable. This is a brand. Um, I went to Pike Market the other day, uh-huh. but I saw them and it was it's called um, Aditi Chai and it is in Seattle, made in Seattle. Okay. Um, and they have like a, a concentrate and it was just like right where the Pike Market, like where the clock is. Uh-huh. They were right there. And so I'm a sucker for a good chai. So I wanted to try it and I, it was really good. So I was like, let me take some home with me. Um, their bottle is, I think this was $18, but it's worth it for a good chai. It's a big bottle. It's a big, uh, 32 fluid ounces. But yeah, it's local. I wanted to share that information on there. And that's what I'm drinking right now. I love now. chai. I love, mm, I'm a sucker for a good chai. <laughs> <laughs> You already shared a little bit about um, your background. Uh, and so I remember your little bio thing said that you were here. Actually, let's start with your name because I was getting some fun facts. I like to like learn a little bit more about other um, Latin okay. American countries. And you had mentioned that Ura is not your legal name. And so when I was looking through my my uh, fun facts, I came across that name and mm. I was like, OK, this is really awesome. And I guess instead of me talking about it, I think it'd be better if it came from you because I think you could do a better um, explanation of what the name means, where it comes yeah. from and like what it means to you, too. Uh-huh. So uh, I go by Yura Yoan, it's a native Taino name from the island. Um, it's a name that you would uh, you would name a it's a male name. <clears throat> um, I also go as Ura because I also identify as well as shorter, right? <laughs> but also I identify as non-binary, and I felt like that name. I started like playing around with it on social media. Uh, just as a nick, just like a username. Um, and then I started, uh, I was also coming out as non binary to my closest folks, and uh, it felt like it uh, just went more with my journey of rediscovering my roots, of decolonizing my own history and decolonizing my name. I have like one of the three most popular Spanish sounding Spanish Hispanic names. Like it's in the Bible, it's everywhere. <laughs> um, I remember I used to work at the mall uh, at this, uh, at a chocolate store. It was like six of us with that name. So you can imagine <laughs> it's, it's, it's about that, and also because um, Urayoan was this cacique, this chief in the island, uh, around 15, 1511 or so, uh, when the Spanish are on the island, uh, the Tainos are also uh, gathering intel <laughs> data, um, trying to, to see how they can... Uh, start a rebellion and so with Urayoan, he was the chief of uh Yaweka in the West. He got together with another chief, Awebana, 
uh, El Bravo, when Ogoy Van Ali second. And they had plotted to uh, take this person, the Spanish person called Diego Salcedo, uh, and help him cross the river, like on a, you know, they were helping him across the river, like carrying him. Um, and then uh, during that, they had planned to see if uh, the Spanish could die like they did. There's this conception or misconception that it's because the Taino thought the Spanish were um, gods, that that's why we took so long to, or our ancestors took so long to uh, to rebel or to defend themselves. I think it was more like since they came with these guns, these animals, and with this entitlement to their land and the land that was supposed to be free for all, that uh, they needed to see if instead of like uh, the same as them, they would would die. Their body would their their body would rot in the same way as them, basically, and just to see if they were just as human as they were and not something other. And so it's like that spirit of like, like science, like kind of like experimenting. I have this theory and I'm going to prove it. I feel like that resonated with me a lot. Um, they decided on doing this, which tribe was going to carry out the, the event through, uh, through a, a ball game through Bate, which is kind of like a mix between, I would say, hacky sack and soccer. It's like this big, it's like this uh, rubber ball. Mm -hmm. And you have this huge uh, plaza where you play it. Um, and then you can only hit it with your body and you try to score. Okay. Is, did you ever see The Road to El Dorado? Uh-huh. Is it? Is it like that scene where they're playing with okay. the ball game and they're like, they're hitting the ball with their hips? Yeah, something like that. Exactly. I remember reading a little bit about that, but not enough to know. I have to compare it to El Dorado. <laughs> and I'm here, and I'm here like basically googling <laughs> but um, i mean there's so many there's so many things that we have in common with like mesoamerican yeah you know uh some names the way that we took care of each other uh, and the way we see nature a bunch of like uh, creation stories about how the moon and the earth uh, humans came to be yeah are so similar uh, which you know makes me excited when i get to talk about these things like for example now because it makes me reach out to other indigenous people and other people of color and we can talk about how we're we can compare because we're different but also we can see how much more uh, similar we are yeah and how much more like related we are too i well i mentioned my pronouns are also they them but i also identify as non-binary and one of the things that i i went through 
is also like my name and its connection. My entire family comes from Mexico. And so I was like, I feel slightly disconnected from from my from where my family came from. I never really felt like I connected with my name. And mm-hmm. this is, I think, a little bit different um, for uh, a little bit of a difference between us is I thought I didn't like my name, but it's more so that I I don't like my name in English. And that's how I always heard it was Sheila, yeah. Monica, Monica. And then sometimes I just thought of, um, do, do you, by chance, did you ever see the show Shameless? I haven't. Okay. I yeah. The only reason I mention that is because one of the characters' name, um, like the kid's mom, is named Monica. And so they were always mad at her. And so they would always say, Monica. And so that's how I would I feel like I heard my name. And then with my family, I'm like, my family doesn't call me even Monica. They call me Moni. Or like every once in a while, Monica, but they call me Moni. And I don't like how money sounds in English. People will say money. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Ew, that's gross. <laughs> and then um, for God, like the past decade, people called me Mon. And I'm like, cool. I like it better than Monica. But recently, within the past like year or so, I started, I want, I want people to call me Monica. But I don't want them to call me Monica. And so... I was like, what can I do to help? I feel connected to my name in a certain way. I've been starting, they've been calling me Mo at work and stuff. And like a lot of people who don't speak English, don't speak Spanish will have been calling me Mo. And I was like, you know what? It makes a lot of sense to me because when you think about it, it's a lot closer to my name, the way that it's pronounced yeah. than, than Mon. And so I, it's been very like, I feel very, I feel better about that and for like the first time in a really long time i'm like no i do like my name i feel connected to it but in this other kind of way but then also by being called mo it also helps with um feeling gender euphoria of like uh i don't know how to explain it but it gives some sort of gender euphoria when people call me mo yeah yeah i feel the same with buddha and and with buddha joanna too like my experience with my name and like my family calls me something else. Like my family has always called me Pito since I was little. I was born. And I used to go by Joey also. I remember in high school, um, <laughs> I would watch um, a lot of friends and I w- used to watch a lot of American TV back in Puerto Rico because I had... You know, I live with my grandparents and they had the privilege to get cable. Mm-hmm. So I had access to that, to, to English television. So people of my generation, maybe that grew up like that, have this space where it's all English. It's all English with your friends. It's all English at school. Because uh, that's what you watch and that's what you're consuming. It's everywhere. Um, but then you go back home and you speak Spanish with your family. And that was kind of like my... My thing, so, but then it also made me think of. <laughs> Sorry, my my Google my Google Home is so uh, interrupting. 
I, I was just asking myself, why was I changing my name to something in English? You know, that duality of like being Puerto Rican, being on the island and, you know, you're on the island and you feel like your it's your nation it's the na your nation that you live in it's your it's your country mm -hmm. we even call it el país when you see the news they're talking about el país they're not talking about the territory they're not talking about the colony yeah i was asking myself well, why was i given so much privilege to 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 english and then joey just became like this name that i associated with the friend um, the person who's always happy, it's always a good time because Joey wasn't ever like sad or depressed, which I was, uh, or anxious, you know? And so uh, when we moved here after Hurricane Maria and the pandemic happens and you're like all by yourself, you're isolated and you start thinking about all these things and who you are and where you come from and that's around the time I started like uh, I also uh, always studied languages and that's what I did uh, in my in my in my bachelor's and my and my doc's and my graduate degree mm -hmm. but I was studying French and Italian oh, so I was also Italian. asking myself <laughs> yep <laughs> um, so I was asking myself, why am I, I like linguistics, I love languages, why am I not discovering my own language, the language of my ancestors, why am I focusing so much on a lot of schoolwork around, for example, France, what is my, where is the connection, you know, if I had the opportunity to study that when I was in college, I would have, but I was in the University of Puerto Rico, um, studying and working at the mall, there weren't really a lot of opportunities to study and more other than like if you did like the language, I mean, mm -hmm. other than if you did a, like an independent study. Um, so I did languages and then I did my, my, my graduate degree and then I ended up teaching at the university mm -hmm. and I learned so much from my students about all this decolonization thing and also breaking down all of those preconceptions of uh, what's important to study what you know yeah the arts <laughs> i was always an art kid so the humanities um always asking what's important versus what's gonna make me happy i guess i don't know no, I get it. I'm curious to know about you like teaching French at the university, but before I move on there, I'm trying to be not go off into too many tangents. Since you've kind of been talking about being non-binary, when did that journey start for you? And when did you start realizing or like actively realizing like this is how I identify and it's always been there? I feel like maybe it's too two or three years ago during the pandemic <laughs> <laughs> maybe same um, i just like looking at myself in the mirror i've never 
really felt like I was my idea of what being masculine is it never what I was supposed to be it was it would never show in the mirror mm-hmm. and then I started dressing a certain way like trusting myself more to like where I would wear I would start wearing like more let's say like androgynous like big t-shirts and like always like browns and you know olives and grays and mm-hmm. kind of like hiding my body a little talking about it with friends also and the reassurance that they saw me finally too and, and I always felt like I've had both like masculine and feminine energy and it's something that like since I was little people have seen me as female sometimes too and have used um, female pronouns which I don't mind uh, she her pronouns or he him pronouns either because it's just you kind of at least for me it kind of fluctuate between the two sometimes Mm -hmm. outside of the two but definitely I do recognize that I I do have the privilege I I do have a privilege that I can pass as masculine or present as male and uh, a lot of people are in danger because they do not conform to what society is expecting. Mm-hmm. So uh, around that time, also about my body and the way it looks, it never, it never felt either one way or the other, kind of like in between. And it always has made sense for me, like the term gender queer, gender fluid, or always made sense to me until like, it started making too much sense. And I was like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) this is uh, what makes me comfortable now. (laughs) What's been great is once I've been able to accept that and present myself as I want to, it's opened like magically the doors to like meeting a huge, amazing amount of people that are also queer, that are also going through a similar experience kind of like finally finding my tribe little by little even though you know i live in washington i have a bunch of friends back home in pr they're all over the world too but it makes me feel like now i have my tribe now i can be myself a little more um not really come out to my family about it or mainly just my like my sister Okay, it's like my best friend, basically. Um, but yeah, that's basically how I think. <laughs> what I love about conversations like this is literally, besides the the messages of or the emails that we've um, exchanged, I don't know much about you. You don't know much about me, but you mm-hmm. talking and talking about your experience with just this one aspect aspect of gender identity I relate to it a lot and it's it's really nice to kind of it helps give some validation because the way that um I was talking to my therapist and I think I mentioned it fairly recently and um I said I always knew that I was non-binary I just never had the words to describe it 
until I was older, until a couple of years ago. And, and I said, I was like, I never identified with being like feeling being like a man. And I was like, and I only associated with being like a woman because that's what the gender roles told me I was supposed to be. And so if I'm going to pick or choose, yeah, I probably have more in common with women because that's how I was forced to grow up and have that gender role and expectations. But I just remember so many times growing up when the gender or when like the gender roles started to come up, I'm like, wait, what do you mean? I can't do that right? because I'm a, I'm a girl. And I was like, but what about my cousins that are younger than me? And they get to do that. I don't understand. And so there was a lot of questionings of like, I, it, it, it was like a, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I guess so. It's because I'm supposed to be like this. And so I remember bring I, I brought a lot of confusion because this is a gender role. This is what I'm supposed to do or be like. And so um, I have an older sister um, and then I also have a younger brother. And so it was like, well, I definitely don't relate to a lot of things that my brother does, likes and acts and everything. And I was like, and I kind of relate to my sister. So I was like, I guess I have to, you know, I was comparing myself a lot to her in terms of like the way that she acted, um, her interests, um, the way that she dressed and a lot of things like that. And it was always like, well, I guess if I'm going to have to choose between both of these or any. And so I just remember there was a lot of confusion for me growing up in in that and not having the vocabulary Mm -hmm. to to say, oh, this is why or like this is how I feel. Yeah, no. So that's like I enjoy having these kind of conversations because it's it's the relatability of having someone else as like going through different journey or going through. It's a similar journey, but it's very different. But it's also similar in the terms of like how we we go about or how we could feel sometimes. And so yeah. I was like, I don't know you that well, but I like I relate to that so so much. Um, yeah, we have had to navigate the world in a similar. In a similar way, due to similar circumstances, <laughs> like I can relate to what you said, uh, because I I grew up with my grandparents basically as an only child, but I have younger sisters um, that grew up with my mom. So I was never in a household with with men. <laughs> it was always my grandma, my mom. When she came over with my sisters, my grandpa was there until like. Say Nate was 12, um, and my dad wasn't there, and so I didn't really have anything in common with my. We got along great with my sisters, but there were things, certain uh, behaviors or like mannerisms that I remember being told not to do, stuff with my hands, or even like inflections. Um, and not really understanding why, like, what's wrong with how I move my hands, how what's wrong with this or that, and then, and then on the on the other side, like hanging out with my cousins, who were all like volleyball, basketball, cars, you know, women. I used to have to like pick a woman that is attractive and. Um, that would be my my go-to, like, oh, yeah, she saw it. Um, like, being between those two never really felt like being a gay man, like uh, how I identified before. Uh, 
was anything to be masculine. And then you have like in in the gay community, then you have like what is like society tells me I'm not a masculine man. And then also with gay or queer standards, like I'm not the definition of masculinity either or femininity. And I was always like, I don't know, on the outskirts of what I thought Mm -hmm. uh, I was supposed to be or should present as, I don't know. No, I think it's a perfect way to put it. Feeling like we're on the outskirts of what we're supposed to be, act like, and everything like that. That's a, I think that's a great way to put it. It's very, mm-hmm. um, it makes sense. It's like, um, have you ever have a dream where you're like running or something, you're trying to catch something and like you're trying so hard, but it's just out of reach. That's yeah. kind of what it felt like. It's like, you're so close. I have a similar dream. <laughs> but it's one of my legs is kind of like asleep. Mm-hmm. So I can't really run. I have, I'm dragging this leg and it won't work. So it's kind of like, yeah, you're trying to run, but there's something like holding you back and you don't yeah. even know what's wrong with your with your leg. You're like, I'm perfectly fine. I don't know why it's not working. Are you okay with talking a little bit about like, with being non-binary and you, when you present a certain way, there's certain things that society expects of you, but then there's also not, not just necessarily with society, but specifically within a Latin community, Mm -hmm. a a lot of the gender roles are a lot more, can bring a lot more pressure for you to follow. Are there anything that, that you would like to talk about or like that popped into your, in your head that was a struggle for you um, or probably possibly still is a struggle in having to deal with that gender role. I think just the one thing I can think of, um, and I don't think it has to be with non, uh, has to do with being non-binary. I think just being like queer in general mm-hmm. and like being in a, in a partnership, like I'm in this marriage with my, with my husband, like I've noticed that kind of like society doesn't ex- expect as much from you as a heterosexual couple because you are doing things kind of like differently and so you're not it's like oh nice okay you you um were able to uh get your home that's nice but like there's no pressure at least for me to like you need to have this degree, you need to do this, you need to get married and have a kid by this age, and you need to do wishes. In part, I feel sad because I don't have an involvement in what I do, mm-hmm. in the things that I do from my family or or from society because I'm seen as other. And so it's just like, um, but in terms of, that's, that's what I've experienced at least recently i was living inside a closet and so i guess you try to kind of like be invisible Mm -hmm. you try to be invisible so that they can't force these expectations of what it is to be a man i guess that's why i didn't ever i guess realize anything about my sexuality or anything because you're just kind of like trying to fade into the background so you don't have to like fit into 
man, gay man, or whatever. Yeah. Does that make sense? I don't know. You know I'm what that, that does? Off. I don't know if that would make sense to other people, but the way that you're describing it, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it just, at least for me and my family, I've always been treated. I try to think that my family sees me as an independent person, mm -hmm. autonomous person, but it it's because of me being queer, I think, because they don't want to get involved in it. Mm. So they're not going to push any agenda on me. But that also means that I feel uh, the opposite of close to them because there's no real uh, interest in the things that are taboo, right? My relationship with a man, the fact that I have a house with a man instead of a woman, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. um, no kids. So, you know. Yeah. And so with your family, you're you're open to them. Like they know that you're married and you living um you have a husband. Um was that like an easy journey for you to talk to them about? No, I'm really just like I was only really just close to my grandma mm -hmm. growing up. So I wasn't out with her. Mm -hmm. Um she obviously knew. Because she raised me. <laughs> um, but, you know, after she passed, uh, and, and even before that, I was living pretty openly. Uh, I just had to, you know, when I moved out of my house, like at 18, to go study, like it's not like I, you know, I was still go into my grandma's house during the weekends um but when i moved by myself um, i stopped caring about what other people were gonna say about me because i had been in the closet for for all my high school life i saw people be in relationships openly and i couldn't mm -hmm. Um, and hiding who I really was. And so I guess since I've always been like that and really like secreted about my relationships and the things that I do, mm -hmm. um, I know not every family is like that. Um, I, I also ask because I'm always interested in how other people kind of go about it with their family dynamics. Um, I haven't, my I'm socially, I'm out. To some of my family members, I'm out. My parents, I'm not. And it's just because it's a conversation that I don't necessarily know how to have with them. Exactly. I'm still same. trying to figure <laughs> that out. Um, I feel very fortunate that I, I know that they're still going to love me. But it's, it, I mean, there's a reason that I stayed like in the closet for such a long time is like that fear of how they would react and like how my supposed loved ones would be and stuff like that. So like, it's something that I'm still trying to figure out how to go about with my, with my own family. So I ask other people, cause I'm like, how is it for you? Or like just trying to learn and also get the courage to, to also do that. So 
I was just going to say, like, I think my my experience with uh, being out and now, like, remembering trauma that has been completely <laughs> blocked from my mind. But um, <clears throat> I don't think I really had a chance to come out um, because I was, uh, when I was in high school, I had this relationship with this other boy um and uh yeah i was using my my grandma's phone back at home and so they were listening into my calls and like checking who i was talking to and there was a whole thing where one of my family members outed me to everyone and so it's like i haven't had the conversation but i also haven't had to because of this event that happened and so it's like they've accepted the extended family and everything. They've accepted me, but it's not really like something we talk about. And I am welcome to bring whoever I love, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that. But I've always felt like there is a kind of like an invisible wall. Like they know, they know about me and they like, respected and I have like extended family from my dad's side who's like you know hey, love the sin or not the sin or that's always kind of been like how I feel my family sees all of that so it's um it's a work in progress mm-hmm. with with uh, with this which it's like that for, for a lot of us um, but I am curious when you mentioned where you moved to in Washington I was like why <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed very because I've, I've been down there um, and I, I'm, I'm curious to know because that's mm-hmm. not like a when people usually go to Washington, it's usually the Seattle area. Yeah, and sometimes they'll go like to Spokane. But yeah, what what you said you came over here after um, Hurricane Maria. Um, what led you, I guess, to Washington? Yeah, so this is the this is the third place I've lived in Washington. We started, um, so going back to the hurricane, right? Um, I was still working at the university, but the university had just come out of a very long strike. Mm. And so, um, and I was a contract professor, which means, um, I have a contract for like just a year and then I have to basically reapply for the position. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically like you're a new employee every time. So, you know, when you start working at a company and you're a new employee, there's all these papers, there's waiting periods for Mm -hmm. your check. And so that semester started already with problems with, how we were going to get paid and then here again Irma and then Maria came and so it was like 
I haven't been paid since maybe May, and this was like September, October. Uh, very desperate times. Yeah, I was going through my savings because uh, I had to get gas to drive to work. I was work I was driving like a hundred miles a day back and forth because my, the apartment where I lived with my with my husband, the ceiling completely got destroyed and so everything in it. So we didn't have an apartment anymore. And my my mental health was like on an all time low, like anxiety. PTSD from the hurricane, depression, and it was like, I want to move, I, I want to move forward uh, with my, I want to, I want to take my family and put them in a better position. My family, you know, my husband and my dogs, but like, it felt like. Something needed to be done, so um, we had traveled to Seattle. We had friends in Portland, and we have other we had other friends that were trying to move to Seattle too. Um, and then, so I started applying to jobs. I was like, I know languages. It's like a techie kind of city. I liked it. Um, it's close to the water, which I like. And um, I didn't mean to move or like choose it because it was so far away. <laughs> um, but since I have people like close to me in Portland, I thought it was like the best like step. And so I remember I got this job at uh, a pet insurance company and um, I got my interview over the phone and then uh, we got some help from uh FEMA to stay at uh, one of several hotels for like a month until we figured things out. So we moved to Kent, um, which was the only location we could go to where we could have our dogs. <laughs> really? Yeah, because it was uh, only at Extended Stay Americas. Okay. And so the only one that could house us with our dog was the one in Kent. Um, so we lived there for a month and then we moved to Tacoma and that's where we got our apartment. We stayed there and then in the pandemic, we decided that we wanted to try to buy a house. And so this is where the market took us. The people during the pandemic were moving south from Seattle because it was too expensive and they were moving to Tacoma and so they priced People from Tacoma further south, and then we ended up in the coast, basically, um, which is where we could afford. Um, and uh, it was basically us trying to build some equity, some sort of like generational wealth for ourselves, mm -hmm. because we don't we don't have any. Mm -hmm. or savings but i feel like at least me this is like a little piece of land that's ours and if it's ours it's also for like our tribe our friends my nieces my nephew my sisters like in the future i feel like it'll become something that's gonna help at least not if it if not me like the next generation my little my little ones or but, um, yeah, we ended up down here. 
<laughs> that that makes a lot of sense. You're not the only one, by the way, that reacts this way. <laughs> I lived in, in Tacoma before I lived in Seattle, and I moved to Washington during the pandemic. And so I was definitely aware afterwards moving how um, Tacoma was going up in prices. Honestly, I moved to Seattle because Tacoma was going up in, in rent. And everything like that. Um, which, oh, that's crazy. Which it's interesting, but I was like, at least, at least the wages were kind of making more sense up here. Yeah. Um, and so I, there was a time period where I was like, also during the pandemic, I was looking at at places, and I do remember that was one of the more affordable areas too. But I do remember looking for stuff, and I remember I went to the bank. Just a little side note: I remember I went to the bank, and I was like, "Hey, how much would you loan me?" Like I've been trying to save up and everything like that. And when they told me, I was like, and I saw the market, I'm like, "All right, that's fine." And so I just got a whole bunch of tattoos instead. I should have gotten the tattoos. Yeah. Which, by the way, manifesting a tattoo gone, so I can practice and learn. Throwing it out there. Oh my god, that would be so awesome. Are you kidding me? And then with like your artwork? It's just something that actually always been interested since I was little. And I have a couple of my own. And it's just been like my own friends encouraging me and saying like, this is something you should try. My sister, she does tattoo work too. Like, uh, eyebrows and stuff like that she also does tattoos um she practiced by herself so that is something that i want to do like my goal Mm -hmm. but like you know financially right now (laughs) i have to stick with my nine to five and uh, keep practicing and, and doing what i'm doing but like that would be my my ideal situation to where i can start practicing on some fake skin yeah. This next year that would be that'll be pretty cool. And then so my psychiatrist, I told her about this idea <laughs> not a while ago and she was like, You don't have to practice, just go out and ask for an apprenticeship. You walk up to the tattoo parlor. And I was like, uh Okay. Maybe, but not right now. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so freaking cool, especially with like the art that you do. If you're translating that onto like ink, that'd be so awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see. I mean, I would love that <laughs> because if I could just work off of what I do, off of my, off, like that's the dream, right? Just do what you love and get paid for it. Yeah. And then party. And then, did you say and then party? And then party. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Oh, actually, that's like a great segue to kind of talk a little bit more into your art. You mentioned a little bit kind of like the um, the inspirations that you have about it, like with um, like science fiction and then like the colors of the Caribbean and everything like that. Let's talk about your art, whatever about your art you want to talk about. <laughs> I've always just drawn and, and, and painted. I've always been like a person that works with their hands. Um, I would, I guess like in high school, like I would, uh, burn, make CDs and stuff and create my own like covers for like little like gifts 
for like my friends and stuff. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> um, and I did went, I did go to art school. I did drop out though. Um, because I was doing, so I went mm-hmm. to school for biology. Then I changed to art, to printmaking. And then I added my degree in languages. But then I had to choose because I was, to me, taking too long in school, which mm-hmm. it's, that's not a thing. You finish when you finish. If I could tell myself that. Yeah. So I decided to stick with the, with the languages only because I had this... <laughs> I had the student advisor in in the art school who and I you know you're in school and you care a lot about what your elders tell you and so this person basically told me that art was my hobby that I was taking up space for someone who really wanted to be in the school and I took that to heart and I stopped drawing and I stopped doing anything but Again, like the pandemic, moving here, being isolated. It's like you have to ground yourself in the things that make you happy. And I mm-hmm. drawing always made me happy. Little doodles or whatever. And so the cheapest medium that I had was pen and paper. So I started like drawing. And then with, with all this like coming out and as non-binary and finding myself and all of that, I started doing uh, an Instagram account where I would post my art. And people were surprised that I was doing, like, I didn't know you drew or, you know what I mean? So that was a part of me that was hiding. And um, I just started drawing whatever came up in my head. I started doing this 30-day challenge that runs in October, mm-hmm. in October called Inktober. So I would try to do that. I remember I started doing it like 2019 or maybe the Inktober thing is running right now, but it's helped me like connect with other artists. It encourages you to keep doing what you're doing. And so I started doing that and I started uh, mm-hmm. getting into colors more, being less afraid of color and trying to bring um, like all these indigenous Taino designs, also like African, because I consider myself to be from Af- I'm considering myself to be Afro-Boricua, so of African descent too. So I, I'm really interested in the patterns, uh, in fabrics, the patterns that our ancestors on the island left on ceremonial stuff and everyday items and. Uh, mm-hmm. The petroglyphs, the all the drawings and the beautiful carvings. Uh, that's part of my my culture and that's representing our culture, but like mixing the Caribbean colors and the the, the colors of the sunset of of our, you know, we're very vibrant, colorful people. And so I was noticing a lot of our symbols, we have guarded them so well, but it's all like in textbooks that are really hard to, that are not accessible to everyone. Uh, our history too, because we're taught a different history in school. So that's why I wanted to like work on these, give it my, my own spin. Like I've been working with 
vibrant colors and also mm -hmm. with like the with like gold using gold because I want to bring forward. It's kind of like uh, you know the gold that was stolen. I kind of wanted to like incorporate it as well because we don't have access to that gold. We never did, and so it's kind of like bringing it up to that level of the 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 riches that we're taking. This quick commercial break is brought to you by technology having a moment and cutting off the conversation while we were recording. So we had to get a little creative and move on to a different subject. Thank you, technology. It's always a pleasure. And now back to our regular, regularly-ish scheduled program. So I don't fully remember. Oh, you know what? Wait, hold on. I think I was asking about how you wanted to talk about the status of uh, Puerto Rico and how something along the lines of that. I think that's what I had asked. Yeah, we were talking about like, you know, the status, political status, territorial status, status. <laughs> um, yeah, I just want, I would want folks to understand somebody who doesn't know what Puerto Rico is, but understands certainly that it's part of the U.S., but it's in the Caribbean and what's going on. Uh, we were a colony of Spain from conquest up to the 1898-ish with the Spanish-American War. It changes ownership basically from Spain to the United States. And so it's basically, it is a colony of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, the official term in English would be the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico or Estado Libre Asociado, like free associated state. Um, mm -hmm. This is always giving the impression that there's some sort of equality. Like Commonwealth, it makes me think of we're sharing wealth, right? But... You know, it's actually more the money that comes out of PR to the U.S. than what we receive. Uh, as a side note, but I would want people to understand that uh, there are territories that the United States possesses in the Caribbean, in the Pacific, all over, where citizens are some citizens of the United States, but that, that doesn't mean that there are there is an equality of basic needs, human rights, uh, social, yeah. economic. Uh, so basically what it means to be the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico is that we have our own government, we had had our own, uh, we make our own laws, right? But we're not able to, for example, vote for the president. Mm -hmm. Even though presidents do primaries and stuff on the island. And we have, for example, uh, electoral, electoral votes and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And we are not oblivious to the fact that we're a colony. And I think it's been 
even made more, we've made more aware in like the consciousness of everyone. Just recently, like uh, the United States under Obama appointed a, a board, an oversight board, which is now basically the governor of the island. So every law, every budget decision has to go through them. And it's been a group of people appointed from higher up. From this was approved by by Congress, and so I think from that event on, this is about I want to say 2016, 2017, 2016. Um, which this is called La Junta, and so with La Junta there, it's 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 even more obvious that we're not able to make our own decisions. It's even more evident that there needs to be something done, and that's the that the Commonwealth experiment failed. And so now the people, now what's left is for the people to decide their future, the Puerto Ricans on the island, with also the input from the Puerto Ricans that can be on the island that are in the diaspora, because we're one big, huge nation. But also I feel like Americans need to understand and also take a side. It can't be just... We have these territories, and that's okay. And we denounce colonialism uh, elsewhere, all around the world. But we need, you know, it needs to start from like in your own backyard. It's happening too. That's what I would like, like false folks who don't understand the situation, like take from from this is that uh, you need to learn more about your. And that's part of the colonization, right? You need to learn more about your history of the place that you come from, mm-hmm. your your nation's history, and how it has profited from, you know, these processes of colonization and, and all that. <laughs> this might be a rhetorical question because I only found out about this um recently maybe maybe i learned about it a few years ago um but more recent is how the government the u.s government tested some birth control on puerto rican women mm-hmm. without them fully aware of what they were getting themselves into exactly and Puerto Rico has, uh, so you're right, like the, the birth control pill was tested on, on on women on the island who didn't know what was going on and didn't know what procedure was being done. And it was a type of also, a, you want to control the population of your colonies. And um, that was one way to see under the guise of, you know, medical help and aid and uh, modernization that was brought to El Campo, like the countryside and the mountains. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, other stuff has been, other things have been also tried. Uh, we have a huge pharmaceutical, or used to, uh, presence on the island too. And, yeah. A lot of things being experimented on on the island and um, tried. 
tested. I think one of the, the things that is surprising and also like alarming is that for me, I don't remember learning much. I didn't know that Puerto Ricanos are citizens, mm -hmm. technically. I I wasn't really aware of that. If I learned it at school, it was so brief that I don't like I don't recall it. And so it kind of it it blew my mind a little bit. I'm like, what? Um, so when I was also kind of getting a couple of these fun facts, I was looking a little bit not not about fun facts. I, I had I have to figure out a different <laughs> way to call it that. Um, but like just this information, um, I was getting a little bit more reading into it and how like um, they that yeah, Puerto Ricans have been technically U.S. citizens. Uh, it looks like 1917. But they can't vote, as you said, for the mm -hmm. president. Um, and I wrote down they can vote for a resident commissioner to the U.S. House of Representatives. Because of this, Puerto Ricans don't need to pay federal taxes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not 100 percent sure what that means. I know other just because government housing, like if you guys can like vote for someone of the House of Representative, rep Representatives, but then I don't necessarily understand how it is that you guys don't have to pay federal taxes. And that's what people, that's what people take that we don't pay taxes, but we do. <laughs> There's taxes. We have Hacienda. We pay our taxes locally. If you're a federal employee in Puerto Rico, you have to file your local mm -hmm. and your federal one. Um, but yeah, I got taken taxes out of my paycheck the same way I've gotten taxes taken out of my paycheck up here. We do our taxes locally with Hacienda. All that money gets uh, all that money gets sent out to the U.S. and like mm -hmm. the debts that we owe and um, the money that we borrowed also is, is going back there to pay that debt. Um, but yeah, we pay taxes. It's just sent in a different way as a sort of like this bunch of taxes that we've gathered goes to, yeah, I don't know, Uncle Sam or whatever. But it's not like we don't, and um, we pay taxes. We pay, that's why we have federal aid from FEMA. That's how we get other federal mm -hmm. aid. It's not a handout. It's equally, that's the thing. It's, uh, it's equally... Reimbursed, uh, disbursed the money. Now with La Junta, La Junta decides what to do with that money, for example. And, but yeah, we do vote for someone who goes and is a kind of representative. I would say it's very much a, like a symbolic position because they don't get to vote on anything, really. Uh that affects the rest of the nation or they can talk to politicians and try to persuade them one way or another so that there are laws that benefit us but to be honest in in the from what i've seen the history of that position it's it works to move forward whatever ideal the political party of that representative uh, holds holds important so we have 
there's basically the people that want independence and that party has a a governor and a commissioner that goes to the US like as a position to to be nominated um there is the party that wants the status quo sort of like staying the same as we are kind of like a mm -hmm. free associated thing um and there is the party that wants statehood and so if the representative from the party that wants statehood is going to vouch for the laws that make statehood happen and so the other representatives when it's their time and they vouch for other things and it's not necessarily like we have a mm -hmm. senator like california or washington best um where this person can bring forward some laws that will help the state and also help others in the process it's more like a very symbolic thing and i know the virgin islands and guam have their own uh similar position too but it's the illusion of of like democracy and uh i that's another thing that uh, i wish folks would understand about how their, their government works is also yes democracy is everywhere and it's a big value but it's not being obviously done <laughs> what is is there something you can think of that would make um someone of a puerto rico a better ally to the country in terms of like if something comes up in conversation or like a resource that would help us be a better ally to you guys yeah i think listening to what puerto ricans want on the island and outside of it, listening to the experience of someone who is born and raised on the island, but also someone who is not born and raised on the island and see what they want and what the families want. And also just look up uh, like you did about Puerto Rico and Google and see what the relationship is to the U.S. and how we came to be what we are and i feel like that is going to help you open your your mind to and like your worldview also um and then whenever the conversation pops up you're gonna know what to say and and, and, and what to do duly noted <laughs> and the best way possible i guess i i, I don't know if that sounded sarcastic but like under, i understand <laughs> what you're saying and i will do my yeah. best to i don't know be a better ally to, to to everyone like that but you did great you did your research <laughs> you know what you were talking about that, that is one of the reasons um also for doing this is like i feel like i should know and it's that interest and want that has me like um, looking up information on not just my own country um, in Mexico, but like all sorts of other different Latin American countries, just like what they've been through, how they were colonized, what is their issues going on right now in present day. And like just being more informed because the history that we learned in school, at least in the American education system, it's, it's definitely very um, sugar-coated. <laughs> very, very sugar-coated. Right. Um, yeah. So 
I'm. And I get that um, ours too. Like the education that I got growing up was, we certainly talked about. I remember learning about my ancestors. I remember learning about uh, the conquistadores, slavery. Uh, but it was very, as a matter of fact, like it was mo a normal yeah. thing that happened. <laughs> and then there's also um, like this, I want to say like collectively like this, myth of what the Puerto Rican is, mm -hmm. the Puerto Rican person. I remember in my textbooks growing up, there's like this, there's a tree and it's like the face of an African person, a Spanish person, and a Taino person. And I don't know if other cultures have this image as well, but it's like, oh, we all came from this tree and we're a perfect mix of whatever horrible thing happened in the past. It doesn't matter. Because we are the mix of Spanish, African, and Native, and that's what makes us us. And it's, you know, it's after you leave school that you start realizing that we're not all equal, and not all families came to be yeah. in the same way, and it's actually not that way, and there are differences, differences racially, uh, not only because of who you descend mm -hmm. from, but how you look like. And so it's, to me, very dangerous when you have this idea that we're all of African descent and we're all Taino and Spanish. And so there is, that gives the illusion that there's no racism because we're all the same. And I think we like to think that there's no racism on the island, but it's, Everywhere, just as much as it is on the islands, even more in the Caribbean, maybe. Uh, even though the Caribbean is, you know, very black, but there's still differences and that need to be acknowledged. People need to acknowledge their privileges and how they came to be, who they are, how their family came to be who they are. Um, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. There was something that I've been wanting to ask. You were a professor at the university? Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's one of my proudest moments or like things I've done or I've accomplished because I remember taking classes and seeing the professors be like it'd be pretty cool to get my degree and end up teaching here and when I started doing my master's in French I did it because I wanted to there's no master's there was no master's in French in the university at that time but I wanted to keep learning French because I wanted to I didn't feel like I mastered it with just my with just what I learned in my bachelor's and so I kept on studying And around the time of my graduation in 2015, I got, uh, I was, I had applied for a teaching job because that's the only thing that was available to do with a bachelor or a master's in a language was to, you know, teach. So I applied to the school. It didn't, uh, 
they didn't hire me, but they recommended me to someone at the university that knew me. That was also mm-hmm. a teacher at the university where I went to grad school at uh, in Vermont. <laughs> Vermont. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Vermont actually has a, the Middlebury's a Middlebury College has a language school and they meet during the summers. You can do uh, your undergrad. So you can do like if you're learning a, a new language. Uh, during your undergrad, it's credit, but also you can do your master's and a doctorate's degree during the summer, so you can mix it with going to study abroad. That was uh, an option for me because I had my life in PR. I couldn't just move to the U.S. and pursue a degree two or three years living by myself. That was nothing that I could do. That You know, I had no savings or anything, so... Um, and I got financial aid for this. And so, and so anyway, this uh, teach, this professor was teaching this undergraduate level. And uh, she knew me from my summers there. And so she offered to see if I was interested. And as soon as I graduated, like two weeks after, two weeks later, I was like already teaching <laughs> without having been like, I hadn't like, taught anything before i had not like taking any Mm -hmm. education classes like about the theory of teaching or or like anything at all i just went to observe a class and they were like okay so can you do the next class in two hours and that's how i that was crazy but i yeah that was an experience I, i really treasured and you were, how long did you teach? Was it for like one, two, two years? Like two. Um, I had to leave in that final, like that second year, first semester. Um, that's when I, I had to leave. That was really hard because uh, I didn't want to tell my, I didn't want to give my students the impression that I was giving up by moving I wanted them to keep, to stay on the island and keep fighting and doing their thing. Uh, like I, I told you, we just come out of like this huge strike and I wanted to keep seeing the fight. And I didn't want them to see like any weakness. So like, I told them like on the last day of class possible that I was leaving. Um, and uh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. I it was one of the things that has given me the anxiety the most. That's when I found out that my anxiety levels were so high. Was you know, I guess like when you are studying for so long, you go out of that bubble and into the real world with a real job, and you have to start paying your loans again, and like all of that makes in together but like while I was teaching like in that moment in class like it felt good mm-hmm. and it felt amazing to see their light their faces light up when they understood something when they, they got a new concept or when they're able to express what they want to say and I think what I liked the most is that I was able to use the excuse of the French language 
and the classroom and have them talk about what was important to them. As long as they did it in French and as long as they tried, even though they don't, they didn't have all the words. Um, I felt like I, I want to think that I provided a space where they could be themselves outside of like their regular classes, which, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing something fun too. We're learning any language. We're not going deep into a textbook and um, analyzing or we're just going one learning to do one new thing at a time in this new language um it also like even the playing field because i had students from mainly the humanities but a lot of people from science and like math and like business and so it it was a way for everyone to be on the same level and there would to not have a space of competition, how it can some at least for me it sometimes felt when I was studying. So okay, so English, Spanish, French, and then do you consider yourself fluent in Italian? I want to say no because I never really had the opportunity to speak it a lot. I can understand it, read it perfectly, and that's fine. But um, yeah, I'm trying to learn Portuguese. Wow. I've been nerd. I I took French in high school. I found it very difficult. It is. Like the numbers, the numbers, I hate <laughs> the numbers. Like after... Like, the fact that you have to do math to get, like, to, uh, 80, it's, like, 20 plus, 20 times 4 or something like that. That's literally yeah. how you say it, 20 times 4. I'm, like, I don't want to have to do math like that. <laughs> and so I just remember always thinking it was really difficult. And um, it takes it takes a while to master, even, like, understanding <laughs> what somebody's saying. And then there's so many accents, so many, like the, the Francophone world is like so big, so many countries speak it in their, in their own unique, valid way to. Je ne peux parler le français. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> All right. I will leave that out the door. No more, no more French for me. Um <laughs> I like to end a little bit towards or like one of the last things is talking about mental health. Yeah. Um, I'm very big on on mental health and like destigmatizing it, especially because um, it's like it's an issue no matter where you're from. And it's a, not an, always an easy conversation to have. And so I like to try to talk about that as much as I can. So whatever you're comfortable sharing um about mental health whether um what you've gone through as you you mentioned anxiety and depression um if there's things that like maybe how it was for you dealing with that topic of conversation growing up or um what you do nowadays for for that anything related to mental health and whatever you'd like to share yeah um i think the way i grew up was 
you know, mental health issues are not something real. Um, they're just being, you know, my criado or, you know, you know. Um, I think also growing up uh, as, a, as, a, as a male, also you are not, you're not supposed to talk about maybe your feelings or like you basically don't have any anything that's bothering you. You just brush away because that's what you're seeing from your from your male figures in your life, your your uncles and your grandpa, and and, and they went and, and they're fine and they did all these things and they're fine and they never had to go to the psychiatrist and also psychiatrists and psychologists are seen as. Or when I was growing up, I'm not saying now, but like, um, like pseudoscience is like, um, it's not important to know how you feel. Mm -hmm. And if there's something wrong, you just take a pill. Um, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to move after the hurricane was because my mental health was being affected. I wanted to be better. For my mm -hmm. for my partner, for myself, for my family, um, I didn't have access to health care. Uh, I didn't because you, when you're in your twenties, you usually have the health care of your parents, or or you can pay for your own. Or I didn't have that, and I wasn't. I I couldn't. I I wouldn't. Uh, what I want to say, my income wasn't enough to get healthcare from the state either. So it's like this kind of in between. So no, no I'm going to have access to therapy, obviously. So one of the things that I wanted was to like, I've, I've always had part-time jobs or jobs where I have no benefits and I had no benefits being a, a professor because I wasn't in a tenure position. Uh, I was working for this other place as a French instructor as well. No benefits there. Uh, and I couldn't afford my own. So I was like, if I'm going to make the move, I'm going to try to find a company or a place, an employment where they offer health insurance that I can start going to therapy and get better because mm -hmm. I felt like uh, just hanging on by like a little inhibitive right uh, and so therapy has helped a lot it's been like it's been like layers of an onion like just at the beginning it was me dealing with PTSD and like a lot of survivor guilt and a lot of like um, reliving the events of the hurricane and what came after and then it became more about finding myself and what I want to do with my life. And then um, it's helped me understand myself more, like what I want out of people, out of life. And it's been good to have some someone to talk to that can sort of unjumble your brain and that they have no particular relationship to you. Mm 
So it's kind of like you have nothing to lose when you are talking and um, and it's not always easy. There's sometimes where you don't want to do it because it's work. But like, if you have access to it, do it. <laughs> when I was in Vermont through the university, I had the services were free. And so that's the first time I went to therapy was like in, I want to say that was 2017. Yeah, that summer, 2017. I started doing my doctorate degree, but I didn't continue it. Um, but that summer, I started going to therapy for the first time. Um, so you mentioned um, PTSD. And a lot of the times when people say PTSD or they hear PTSD, they think of of, of war and soldiers going and everything yep. like that. But um, it's a lot more complicated and more expansive than that. And so um, I, for me, I actually have my own kind of share of that. Um, and recently um, started showing signs of PTSD after uh, a dog attacked my dog in, in my hands. It's problematic because I work with animals. And so it's, it's an issue that I'm going through at work right now. But yeah. it's, it's a newer thing that I've experienced as an adult. That for me looks and is a lot more different than everyone else's, um, especially like with, with like depression. When people think of de depression and anxiety, it's a little bit easier to understand that everyone goes through their own version of what that's like. And I yeah. feel like with PTSD, it's a little bit harder for people to kind of understand that or realize that um, without knowing someone who can tell them or explain to them. Do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about that in relation to, in relation to um, like the hurricane and, and kind of how that came about and how you're healing from that? <clears throat> yeah, and I think I think it's important to talk about it too because I know that there, like I don't live on the island. There's people that survive and stayed, and so there's mm -hmm. also PTSD of those who stayed, and it has, for, at least for me, the way it manifests. It has to do a lot with like survivor guilt of surviving this huge catastrophic event. Um, you kind of feel like, why did I survive and not these other people? It has it manifested itself when it can be like a little rainy and, and, and a little bit cloudy. And I'll just go back into the headspace. And I I was lucky that I was safe in a home that was safe as well. And we were safely guarded. But there's so much stuff that happened after. Like, there's a lot of trauma that comes after having to do with, like, not being able to contact your family because there's no phone service for weeks. Just the change in the landscape of what you thought your island looked like before versus what it looks like now. Um, aid, long lines, uh, waiting for gas to fill up the tanks to go to work, and let alone the electricity, the water, that's a whole other story. You kind of already know how to live with that because you're on an island with a very old electrical system, so you have blackouts, you're used to it, and you have 
cuts in water sometimes too. But it was like unlike unlike anything I've ever experienced. I remember my grandparents talking about these huge hurricanes when they were little. And this was nothing compared. Um, and I remember having gone through a hurricane in, I want to say, 89. And I remember, and 98 also. And I remember, like, the aid and the way that everything, the way that we reconstructed um, compared to now as an adult and, and, and how much more serious everything was. It was a complete shock. At least to me, and so I know that for a lot of people as well, it's a thing that completely changed us as a nation. Is there something about PTSD or about living on an area where there's hurricanes or something from both that you would want other people to to know or be aware of? I think it's important to to know that this is happening. To people all over the world, just are being being victims of um, of climate change. I would say also, um, if someone who's suffering from PTSD and they tell you try to understand, and not it's not as easy as um, I get this reaction in my body to stimuli it is like you are being transported in time and space to a place of a lot of hurt and a lot of suffering and even though i'm physically here in front of you i am seven years in the past in my bed waiting for waiting to have some reception on my phone and um, that immobilizes you. It doesn't allow you to enjoy your day, your life, the people that are close to you. So if someone reaches out to you with this information, uh, ask what they need from you and how you can be supportive and just be there i love that um i think that is a a great way to to kind of just for a lot of mental illness issues is asking someone what they need how can i support you um is there anything that we've talked about so far that you want to before we move on to something else um anything that you'd like to bring up recap something you forgot that you want to mention i don't think so no I think we've covered a lot <laughs> way more than I thought. <laughs> um, okay. So you brought up the idea of talking about what we would do to celebrate Dia de los Muertos. And so when this episode is coming out, it'll be Halloween. I thought that was a great idea because I know that the way that I celebrated it was very different. Um, if anything, I think it was very American more than anything. Because for me, we never did Dia de los Muertos. And I felt like kind of growing up, as I started to learn about it, I felt a little left out. I felt mm-hmm. a little, 
I felt not Mexican because of that. But we never really did like altars um, and stuff like that for for me growing up. Um, my parents did allow us to dress up. Um, and because I know there was like I had some kids around me growing up whose parents were a lot more religious and, and didn't want them celebrating Halloween or anything like that. Um, so for me, Halloween and this time of year, it's mostly just was always me and my siblings dressing up and getting candy. Um, I didn't really even know much about Dia de los Muertos until I got older and realized like, oh, this shit actually happens in my home country. What? And, um <laughs> And that's something that I've actually been wanting to get into is kind of learn more about it and, and everything like that. I did live next to um, uh, family members of mine who my aunt by, by marriage, she had an altar. She would always do it and have it. And, and I started to see it from her how it was. And I thought it was always really beautiful. And I was like, I've never, I've never dug into it, but I was like, I've always wanted to do it. Um, So that was my very exciting <laughs> history of how I spent my Halloweens and and stuff. <laughs> well, I would say we had a very similar uh, upbringing in terms of like, for example, for Halloween, that's what I would do. Like I was, I would be playing, like dressing up as whatever a trending thing was happening the mayhem of going to like party city and get that <laughs> <laughs> oh, party that, city. that costume and so we would i live i live up I, be, I live basically in the jungle so there's no like trick-or-treating walking a mile from one house to the other um i would know my grandma would take me to my my aunt and my uncle's like neighborhood like a gated community um and so i would just get ready over there with my cousins and we would just trick-or-treat um i do remember like when we were talking about the other smarts and, and, and all of that um the, the past few years i've been remembering that um like i told you i grew up with my grandma my my grandpa and my great grandmother uh, had passed away, and so I remember every day. I, was, I think either November first or the second. I don't know which one is the exact day that we went, but we went to basically the um, the cemetery and basically clean like the area, like El Ataúd or like the you know, like the there the tomb of the people in the family and we would go one by one and we would exchange like the old plastic flowers because there there were never any real flowers in the in the things because of the sun it would be just you know plastic yeah. flowers so they last longer and so it would be changing the old plastic flowers for new ones cleaning the top and i would help them sometimes we would paint like give it a fresh coat of white paint to the outside and so i think that's we didn't have in my family i don't in, in puerto rico 
they don't celebrate Dia de los Muertos like they would back in Mexico, right? At, mm-hmm. at night and have a whole thing during the until the morning hours. But at least I know that my my family did this for the dead, and um, we didn't have altars. I do remember. So my grandfather was Catholic. And my grandmother was Baptist. So <laughs> we didn't, we weren't like a religious household, but the ideals and the morals of just Latin American culture, mm-hmm. they're there. It's all religious. So it's, you know, but I do remember my, uh, my uncle was in the Gulf War. And I do remember like a little altar with a Virgen de la Regla and a bunch of candles, like, but that was the most altered thing I think I saw. And then I was taken to a lot of rosaries, like after somebody dies, they have like yeah. a couple. I remember a lot of those. Is it, did you also do it where you like pray like for like nine days straight? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, yep. What do we call it? Novenario? Novenario. Um, I think we just used to call it uh, Rosario, like, oh my God, I'm such a religious person that I know all these names. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, it used to be like a bunch of days and the house was completely dark, only with candles. And it would just, I just remember people uh, repeating Hail Marys and just constantly. Da, 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 da. I know there are families that just bury their dead and that's it and they don't go visit and i think because i grew up with my grandma and my grandpa um they still had those old values of honoring the dead in a certain way that i still carry that with me like for example sometimes like right now i have a picture of my grandma and my grandpa because we're doing this Dia de los Muertos thing. I think what I try to do, like, sometimes for a birthday, I will cook a big meal that I know would have been something. For example, my grandma would have cooked. And so, like, I'll get flowers for the house and I'll cook. And, like, if it's her birthday or, like, if I'm really, really thinking about someone, I'll, I'll light a candle and I'll try to, to think about them. Um, it was always, I think, growing up a lot, uh, we dealt a lot with death because I had two older uh, parents, basically, who had to go to a bunch of funerals. Uh, my grandfather was a t-shirt, too, so there was a lot of student funerals I went to. Uh, and then, like, just recently, this past two years, I this past year, last year, I lost, like, two of my closest friends, too, one to COVID and the other unexpectedly. So I feel like I've always had, like, deaths close to me, and I always felt, like, kind of comfortable with the idea of honoring the dead and thinking about them and instead of just thinking that someone passed and letting it go. I think that is where it it was a little bit different for me, um, where you said that, you know, you are a little bit more used to death and everything. I 
didn't. That sounds a little morbid. Um, I wasn't around that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know. Maybe it would have been different if I had more like death when I was younger. I guess I I don't know how to else to put it. Um, but I didn't go to my very first funeral until I was like twenty two years old. Oh wow! And so yeah, because I didn't really have that many people around me that I knew had passed or, you know, if they did, it was like so-and-so from Mexico. So I didn't really know them. I didn't lose a grandparent until 2019. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I didn't really have that many people around me that were, um, that had passed. And so I think that was the thing that's a little bit different too, is that I was fortunate to not have to have that in my life earlier on. So I didn't really give it much thought in terms of how I would celebrate life after death Mm -hmm. in that sense. And so with years coming on where I have started to lose people here and there, it's, it's more like it's wanting, it's making me want to look into celebrating life after death in a way that is very, um, that is healing um, where I am able to remember this person and celebrate that I was in their life and everything, and then um, I don't know, heal from 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 that. I feel like for me, it's important to, at least for for my my friend Liliana and my friend Eddie who passed away recently, and they were like the oldest friends I have or know, I feel like it's important to me to tell others about how amazing their life was and how amazing, what amazing people they were, but also like, just feel like proud about that they let me into their life and that I was a, that was a testigo, that I was a witness to their life. That kind of reminds me. Um, so, I, I briefly mentioned is I work with with animals and um, primarily cats and dogs. I'm also in the ER, so I see a a lot of a lot of death. Um, it may not be human, but it's a lot of sadness when someone loses yeah. their their pet. And so it was kind of within the past couple of months that I I, I ended up coming across two people who talked about them losing their pet recently. But then I got to see this side that I that I don't always get to um, because I see people when they lose their pet, I see like the the present emotions of of them dealing with that in that moment. I don't get to see how they heal afterwards. And so when I was talking to these people and while they were like, yes, you know, it was really sad, but. I got to spend so many years together. I got to give them a good life afterwards. I was able to do this and that. And we, I remember I was laughing with my family when we were talking about this, remembering our pet. And it was really beautiful to get to a, to witness someone talking about their pet as they've healed from it, as they're healing from it. I, I think that's something that's super important. And you can kind of relate to this in, in different ways. Like, um, in remembering a life, whether it was a, a friend, a loved one, a pet, like just remembering, being able to smile afterwards, 
could smile through the pain and be like, yes, it hurts that they're gone. But I'm so happy that I got to spend this time with them. And just being able to have those beautiful moments of remembering that positive impact that this living person creature had in their life. And so that's one of the reasons that's also kind of guided me or like motivated me to also trying to celebrate Dia de los Muertos is is really focusing as well on the fact that we got to spend such a great time with this person, with this human being here for as long as it was, but being able to celebrate, you know, the good. Allow yourself to feel sad that you're no, we're no longer together, but also remember that you guys had a good time and, you know, you were able to spend time together and everything like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's like when we're talking about um, mental health, right? You don't talk about mental health, you know. So at least for in my experience as an adult, when I started losing people, I got a lot of you need to get over this, and that looks differently to everyone. Mm-hmm. And so for the people around me, that looked like going back to being the happy person that I was. And to me, I wanted to stay in their sadness. And I think what helps a lot is to understand that it's a normal thing to lose someone, but also to understand that being sad is normal, that it's not wrong or a bad thing. And and like you said, like remembering the all the all the good things about this person, how much they saw you grow, remembering that they were also a witness to you, eh, that that helps. So if everyone if if anyone's like struggling with that, you're not alone, and it's okay. Yeah, no, you are not alone and it is okay. Um, It's a a great way to to put it. Um, That's not what I was expecting for us to talk about when we were going to talk about Halloween, Dia de los Muertos. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, that's fantastic. Let's talk about it. And I know, I guess that's like the beautiful thing about conversations like that. The last thing that I have are just a, a couple of, of facts from Puerto Rico. I'm I'm very curious about your list. So let's, <laughs> let's do okay. it. Okay. So I tried to... You're actually the first person that I've talked to that is from Puerto Rico, which I was a little surprised about because I was like, I thought I would have gotten the chance sooner. I don't, I don't know. Anyways, so um, a lot of this stuff was very new to me. Um, like mm-hmm. the whole, you guys have been citizens for a little over a decade. Um, but the other thing is the piña colada was invented there. Oh yeah. And I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think I ever knew where it came from, honestly, but I was like, huh. Yeah. That was really Very, cool. yeah. And love piña coladas. You're drinking them since you're little, obviously virgin. But there are they're at every event, every just like you would any other frozen drink. I think um, they have like a they have like a plaque 
outside of the building. It says, this is where Piña Colada was invented. It's a Barrachina restaurant in Old San Juan, I think. I, I, I would love to go to Puerto Rico one day. There's a lot of countries I would love to go to. I will have to put that on my list. <laughs> um, all right. So the only rainforest in the U.S. forest system is located in Puerto Rico. It's called El Yunque. Correct me if, mm-hmm. I, if I said that wrong. Um, Perfect. And <laughs> and it receives over 100 in, 120 inches of rain every year. Um, and it looks like that is n- near where you grew up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's part of, yeah, I grew up in the, that area is called the Falda del Yunque, the skirt of the mountain. So it's kind of like the uphill. Yeah. But it takes um like... It, it occupies, I think, maybe four or five municipalities. It's so big. Damn. Where you're from there, it also, they're known for also their golf courses? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trump, Trump. There's a Trump course there. And, uh, There's a what? A Trump. Uh, he has, Trump has like golf courses as well as all the hotels and stuff. And so there's one of them. Yeah. I want to say I'm, I'm surprised, but I'm not. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway. All right. <laughs> anyway, uh, most of the island's um, original vegetation was removed through agricultural, exploita- through agricultural exploitation. And the biggest impact occurred during the first two decades of the 20th century, which like, that's why I'm like, I can't, I got to stop calling these fun facts um, because <laughs> that's not necessarily fun, um, but maybe real, real facts. But yeah, I was like, it's something that I feel like I also want to talk about like important things as well. So that's like, that's kind of a, a big thing. Um And this, okay, this one's fun. This one's fun. There are only five bioluminescent bays in the whole world, and Puerto Rico has three of them. The others are in Jamaica and Vietnam. There are some sources that said that it's like there's more than that. Like, apparently there's some in Seattle, but in terms of, like, true bioluminescence or specificness or whatever, there's, like, you can count them as there being five in the world, and most of them are, are there. And I haven't actually, I think when I was little, I went, I have to like remember seeing like the bioluminescence in the water, not necessarily in a bioluminescent bay, because I know you can go kayaking and you can like see as your paddle runs through the water, you can see the lights and stuff of the organisms, but I haven't actually done that. So that's on my bucket list. There is one here in Seattle. Um, okay, so I, I saw the one in Seattle, and it's like, oh, go kayaking in Bioluminous and I don't know, something like that. And then afterwards is when I came across this. And so I was like, wait, hold on. Are there only really five? So I think it just kind of depends on the definition of it and what you're referring to. But there's technically one nearby, I think in the San, San Juan Islands, but somewhere near outside of Seattle. Yeah, so, that sounds like something I've I've heard before. Um, maybe it has to do with some sort of classification, protected status, how how bright 
they are, I guess. Yeah. There are a lot of people, a lot of people that are from Puerto Rico or have ties there. So, <clears throat> Daddy Yankee, Luis Fonsi, Wisin Yandel, Jose Feliciano, Ricky Martin, Grupe Calle 13, Rita Moreno, Benicio del Toro, Bad Bunny, Lin-Juan Miranda, Michelle Rodriguez, Gina Rodriguez, Zoe Zaldana, Mark Anthony, Raul Alejandro, Tito Puente, Miss AOC. Represent. <laughs> and so those I, those are just some of the lists. And I didn't, I realized, I was like, holy shit, there's a lot of people. And I, I was like, I knew, but like having it written down. Yeah. I was like, oh, damn. And then there was a couple on here as well that I wanted to um, mention. So Roberto Clemente, he was the first Latin American and Caribbean player to be accepted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. which represent. Yeah. From Carolina, Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, all right. And then did you ever watch um, the live action Scooby-Doo movies? Uh, I feel like maybe but i'm gonna do say you no. remember uh fred <clears throat> yeah okay live action fred yeah yeah freddie prince jr oh yeah his grandmother yeah his grandmother is puerto rican and apparently he speaks spanish i didn't look too far into it i remember hearing yeah it's so just so many like through the years there's always like new art new actors and artists come up right and it's like oh hey did you know yeah um there was a one here a psychologist named carlos albizu miranda mm -hmm. he was the first hispanic educator to have a north american university renamed in his honor um and he is one of the first hispanics to earn a phd in psychology in the u.s yeah there's um the carlos albizu university in, in san juan is mainly focused in psychology and yeah yeah see that's so cool one of us want to say one of the forefathers or like the people that uh, fought for PR yeah. and ideologically along with other educators. That's really cool. Let's see. Like, I feel like I always go through tangents whenever I'm looking through these, these real facts <laughs> is it makes me want to go into like all these other ones. Um, uh, so this other one is Fernando E. Rodriguez, Rodriguez Cargas was a dental scientist and discovered the bacteria that causes dental cavities. Okay, and this one is my favorite one. And this might only be exciting for, for the nerds out there. This person, his mother is Puerto Rican. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Are you serious? Yes! <laughs> Yes. Oh wow. Huh. See? Yeah. It's yeah. Insane. I was like, holy shit. I, I put in caps. His mother is Puerto Rican. <laughs> that is amazing. I wonder where from. Uh I didn't get there. <laughs> but um but yeah. Um well those are my my facts there. Those were great. Um, uh, would you like to? <laughs> Thank you. I tried. I I, I tried. Um, do you have any shout outs or any social media that you you would like to share? Um, I am on Instagram. It's at Uracanada. It's U R A 
K-A-N-A-D-A. <laughs> um, Any last things you want to say before, before we sign off? Um, I don't know. Thank you for having me. Happy Halloween if you're listening. Viva Puerto Rico Libre. I don't know. That's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you for being on here. I appreciate your time. Um, and to those listening, until next time.